On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another episode of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus Goldman. It's week two of Punk Rock Month 2023. After our incredible episode about the dead Kennedys this week, we're waving the black flag, man. A whole different punk ethos than what the dead Kennedys were about. This was the Orange County punk scene. And they had bands like The Germs as influences. They had bands like X as the influences. The Dickies and Black Flag and some of those other younger bands wanted to do it younger, faster, and harder than those bands that were preceding them in L.A. Plus, they were pissed off. They were suburban white kids that hated the system and the life right the kids of hermosa and redondo beach and all that area that were against the system they were living in yeah they really did not like that conformity and they really rebelled with that music making it harder faster and uglier and darker lyrically too because there was a lot of self pain and and singing or screaming about the pain that they felt inside because of everything that was going on around them we will talk about that later because it's evident in henry rollins lyrics when he joined black flag and it changed the direction of the band completely suburban isolation a repeated theme in american punk i would say more than the uh, british version yeah plus henry rollins had a pretty gnarly childhood as well that definitely impacted who he was but black flag over on the west coast started it was the brainchild of greg ginn he was born in 1954 in tucson His family moved to the Hermosa Beach area when he was a kid. He wasn't even a music kid growing up. At the age of 12, he started his own small business called Solid State Tuners, where he sold electronic parts. And he also created a ham radio type of fanzine, electronic parts fanzine called The Novice as well. So he was more business economics oriented and he became interested in music after donating money to a local radio station called KPFA. He was sent a copy of this guy, David Ackles, his album, American Gothic. I've been north and east and south. Which one is the best? I found people are the same all over. But the sun shines in the west I warn ya I'm coming back to California Lend me a shack and I'll perform ya All kinds of happy songs to ease your pain Think of all we will gain We'll be sunny Until it starts to rain And then... He picked up the guitar. He was 
coming home from college after school, picked up his brother's guitar and he was real stressed out with the classes. So he started jamming on the guitar and hitting it fast and hard to release stress. Then he looked at his older brother's uh, chord books and eventually moved over to electric. But that's really kind of how he got his start. Guitar is therapy, if you think about it, man. And his music taste really changed when he bought a copy of television's Little Johnny Jewel. The sound of that song blew his mind. One of the things I learned early on is that SST got its name from the company that he started, Solid State Tuners, SST Records, all out of the mind of Greg Ginn. Man, he was way ahead of his time as far as DIY and getting it done, too. And after starting to play music, he saw the Ramones play, and that speed of their sound gave him a speed rush of his own. And he was like, that's the kind of music that I want to do. And at the same time, somewhere else, Chuck Dukowski saw the Ramones play at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and realized that that was the type of music that he wanted to make as well. But they didn't know each other at this point. Mm. This is how rock and roll works. People like-minded finding each other. So what happened next, Marcus? He started the band Panic with his older brother Raymond, Ray Pettibone, and drummer Keith Morris. When they were all getting together to practice, the song Search and Destroy by the Stooges came on, and he started jumping around the studio and or the room and jumped across the couch and crashed. And Greg Ginn was like, you're going to be the singer. Yeah. had a lot of bass players at the very beginning spot glenn lockett was one of the original bass players that played with them occasionally when we get further into the story marcus i want to talk more about lockett and his role as a player and producer and all that but yeah but i don't want you to get off track here you're on a great roll my friend this kid mcdaniel was playing bass for worm whose stage name later became chuck dukowski that was the guy that Greg Ginn wanted to play with, and he ended up joining the band, and they seemed to have really good uh, chemistry. At that time, Spot worked at a studio called Media Art and convinced them to record Late Night when the rates were cheaper, and that's when the Nervous Breakdown EP came to be. And the distortion, if you go back and listen to it, it is distorted as hell. And that distortion is from pure volume. They had to play loud because there was a cafe underneath the studio and some acoustic band or some other band was playing below them. So they had to play really loud to get their band heard and recorded the way they wanted to. And that's why you hear uh, Nervous Breakdown as distorted as it is. You know, you can't understate the importance of Chuck 
to the production sound. He and Spot and also drummer Bill Stevenson always in the room fiddling with the knobs and making that sound. And so they together kind of developed the Black Flag sound as it evolved. And Black Flag also was one of those bands because they were so aggressive. They uh, had a lot of run-ins with the police over the years. And the police raided their studio when they were uh, rehearsing with... uh, Worm, the band that Chuck Dukowski was in before he joined Black Flag. They had run-ins, they had shows where the crowds would get so crazy that the police would be like, the only way we can stop it is we beat them up and then it just got crazy and i think those early shows in orange county were nuts from some of the stories i've read over the years in fact their first non-house party was a live gig at the moose lodge in redondo beach the moose lodge oh my keith morris ended up wrapping himself in an american flag and got tossed from the warehouse by the moose lodge uh, security team immediately. Uh, i bet he did yes yep so yes. no good and then there were uh early fanzines like slash and Flipside that were taking note of what black flag was doing and they were one of those bands that toured and played live all the time that's how they built their chops that's how they built their sound and they were one of those bands that played at least 200 live dates a year when they really got rolling they became like a hub band all these bands that greg signed sst that were from the area he, he became like the godfather and I think he's also the godfather of tone in all this. When I listened to all the music, and I hadn't listened to all of it or even most of it in a long time, so I get through it all, and I keep hearing that same thing pretty much throughout. The tone of Greg Ginn driving the whole thing. What do you think about that? I think his tone uh, was pretty much a signature for the sound, even much more than the rhythm section. The distorted sound that he used made you feel uncomfortable and made you feel a little angsty. It really did. And then the lyrics added. he actually wrote on top of it, really, especially in those first bunch of albums, Greg Ginn was pretty much the sole lyric writer. Other than Damaged, which basically seems like it's uh, Henry Rollins' biography, and it's pretty dark and scary. We got to jump back because right before Black Flag went on their very first tour, Keith Morris left the band and started the Circle Jerk. So Ron Reyes joined and played with the band for about a year and a half. And then he quit into, you know, the two songs into the show, as we talked about. Right. And then they convinced after going on the road and having all these people jump on stage, they convinced Ron Reyes to come back and record the Jealous Again EP in the summer of 1980. But that was all he was going to do. So they had to find a new singer. And after a while of not having a lead singer, Chuck Dukowski ran into Des Cadena and convinced him to sing because he was a huge fan of the band. He knew their lyrics. He knew their songs. And they saw him at all these shows. So they were like, man, you're our guy. How about that? Yeah, pretty crazy. And he stayed with the band for a while. 
and ended up leaving as well. And then after that is when Henry Rollins came in. He had met Chuck Dukowski, had a re- had built a relationship with them because he was part of the DC punk scene at that time. He was friends with Ian Mackay. And-, and Ian was involved in some of the record production through the years, too. Let me ask you something. Was this when he was still a member of State of Alert? I think it was after he left them and was looking for the next thing to do because he was uh, he was working at an ice cream shop when he drove up to New York City to see Black Flag play and they had, you know, a bunch of singers. He came up and sang a song and crushed it and talked to the guys. And then a couple weeks later, they called him back and were like, yo, come on up to New York. Uh, We want you to try out for the band. After that, he packed up a bag and he took a train to New York City and uh, they told him what song to perform. He knew all the songs and they ended up playing for a while. And then they were like, all right, hold on. We need to have a band meeting. And they all disappeared in another room for like 10 minutes. And we're like, okay, dude, you, it's you. You're the lead singer. Wait a minute. It's just like that commercial, that insurance commercial where they hire Slash. Yeah. He sings like three riffs and they're like, you're hired. They knew exactly what they wanted. At least Greg, I think Greg and Chuck definitely knew exactly what they wanted as far as a front man. And he, uh, brought that kind of menacing and uh, intimidating aspect to the sound and it complemented the music and the lyrics very well and that was what they needed. think that they realized what a deep thinking person they were bringing into the fold and the effect that that would have on their direction? I don't think they realized that until later. I think because Greg Ginn pretty much wrote the entire damaged record, they didn't get to really see what Henry could do until a couple of albums later when they moved away from the extremely fast hardcore and started moving into the slow sludgier punk. going to try to unravel as much of the history of black flag as we can this week on the imbalance history of rock and roll but you got to say that henry is primarily identified by most people who know black flag as the guy in some ways he took that and rode that into his solo rollins band career and something that happens in the history of black flag opens a door and maybe in his head said yeah i can do this and gets Henry on the path to being a spoken word artist as well. 
he met somebody while he was with Black Flag that was very into the spoken word, and that played a big influence on him. And that actually was one of the things that really upset Greg Ginn as they were moving forward because at first the band was a lot more carefree when they were a faster hardcore band, part of that really raging hardcore scene. Sure. As the sound evolved and as the ethos of the band evolved greg took more and more control of the band sometimes they were practicing eight hours a day six days a week seven days a week and they were just working 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 but that was the kind of work ethic that greg has so 1985 they put out three albums four. i mean well i wasn't counting the live album but they put out three albums in the live i mean in one year that's a lot of output at one point, I'm not surprised that they felt like they had to put the uh, the brakes on it. I'm really not. And they, for pretty much the entire existence of Black Flag, struggled to eat food and were hungry and starving and dirt poor. That was meager for all of them. And they have talked about the struggles of that part. That's why food on the rider was always so important early on, not to throw it around, but to eat. Greg Ginn told the people at this fair or some sort of fairground event that they were a Fleetwood Mac cover band. So they get to the <laughs> stage and they start just tearing it up and immediately people start throwing sandwiches and food at them and they're like, hell yeah. So they kept playing and they got all this free food wrapped up. Yeah, they got to eat good for a few days. So they were like, yes. I'm just blown away by the level to which they were able to take things with the number of gigs constantly touring, going all over, all over the world, and then making records at a record-breaking pace at the same time, all through the mid-80s, right up to the time they hit the wall when Henry left and everything went that way, south, right? Yeah, I mean, Chuck Dukowski left right before my war. Two songs of his appeared on that album, but... His loss was felt by the band and by the sound. But again, at this point, Greg was pretty much in control and in charge of everything from not only a business end, but from a direction of the band. And they released before the Dead Kennedys and many other hardcore bands. At the top of the podcast episode, Marcus, we kind of breezed by the label that uh, Ginn started out of his previous company, the Solid State Tuner Company, uh, SST Records. And not only was it a base for Black Flag, obviously, but a lot of other bands right from the beginning, the Minutemen and uh, Overkill LA, Meat Puppets. These bands were starting on SST. So they were the place to be, right? Oh, absolutely. And you should go back and listen to D Boone and the Minutemen. They were great. They were special. He died tragically in a car crash, if I'm not mistaken. And it absolutely crushed that band. You also had the band Saccharine Trust, who recorded on SST. The Meat Puppets 2 
is an album that you might know from the Nirvana Unplugged CD, the Lake of Fire song that Nirvana covers on Nirvana Unplugged is from Meat Puppets 2 in 1985. Their version is cool, but what Nirvana did with it, they took it to a whole new level. You have uh, Worm was another really good uh, early hardcore band that was on the uh, SST label. Now, let's not forget that Husker Du was the backbone of the label all through the 80s, along with the bands we've been talking about. This is real underground, real alternative stuff. And I happen to notice number 59 on your SST hit parade from Sonic Youth, Evo, in 1986. Is that the first you heard of them? That was not the first I had heard of them. I had heard of them the year before in college. Somebody in one of the dorm rooms was playing Sonic Youth, and I was like, whoa, that's pretty sweet. Yeah, you mentioned those Husker Du records, and they're very, very important in the evolution of punk because Bob Mould and what he sure. did in the 80s and 90s, and even still today, a big influencer. You had uh, the Bad Brains, Eye Against Eye in 86, which is a marvelous record, just beautiful. Early albums from Screaming Trees and Dinosaur Jr., a great place to be at this point for anybody who wants freedom to create what they're feeling without any kind of commercial restrictions. Oh, yeah. You also had the Descendants. You had Firehose. I forgot about them being not label. So it was pretty wild. Milo Goes to College is the big Descendants record that so many people are familiar with as far as that, what the, that band goes. Serious music in the 80s and 90s. And Soundgarden's Ultra Mega OK is on SST as well. They seemed able to handle the workload. And in those days, it involved pressing as well as CDs. And they seemed fully capable of doing it. So bands really wanted to be on that label. They knew they'd get the support they needed. Wow. It's a lot, man. That's a lot. And we're only in the first half of this episode. Punk Rock Month on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. This episode, all about Black Flag. What do you say we take a pause for the cause, Marcus? Come back and then get going on part two. We'll dig into the albums and more about Black Flag next. We just ordered some socks from boldfoot.com, Marcus. We're waiting for the shipment to arrive. Can't wait. Whenever there's new Boldfoot socks in the mail, I always get excited. 
Me too. In cold weather, I love riding my bike with my bold foot socks on. I've been out on a few days where it's been really cold with the wind and those bold foot socks really make a difference in keeping my feet a little bit warmer because cold hurts your feet when you're riding. The warmer weather is moving in, and that means more walking for me, more golf for me. And I haven't had the low-cut socks, which I ordered since last golf season. So I'm really looking forward to see what kind of support they lend and how they keep my feet nice and dry when I'm out there walking 9 or 18. Also, Josh Law, who owns Boldfoot Socks, ran his second 100-mile ground foot race in the same pair of Boldfoot Socks he wore the year before, and they held up fine. So these American-made socks are tough. American-grown, American-sewn. And I just want to say, when it comes to doing that 100K stuff, Josh, who has the time? (laughs) (laughs) Check them out at boldfoot.com. They are no doubt the coolest socks on your feet. Ah, springtime, Marcus, and the warmer weather means... The doors are going to be open. People are going to be drinking those Crooked Eye brews outside, enjoying the atmosphere of the warmer weather as the weather turns towards the beautiful part of spring. But between here and there, they're keeping it rocking inside, too, at Crooked Eye, right there in the heart of Hatboro. And we thank them for their support for about a million years now on the Imbalance History Podcast. With the weather getting nice, that means they're going to line up some really beautiful spring type of beers for you and I to enjoy when you sit outside and enjoy the weather at Crooked Eye. They also have cocktails. They have food. So much more. It is a great place to hang out. And the entertainment is ongoing every night. There's something going on, including my vinyl night, the second Tuesday of every month. Grab some friends, come on around right there off of York Road in Montgomery. It's Crook and I Brewery, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. Always a good time to be had and a new friend to be made. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new Factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. It's Black Flag on Punk Rock Month on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. Ray and Mark is hanging out talking about this amazing band. 
And, you know, they really were a self-contained unit because of Brother Ray and his artwork. You know, think about it when they're growing up and Greg starts to get into music and he realizes that his young artsy brother could be a key component to the whole thing that they're putting together. How about that? <laughs> and he changes his name from Gin to Pettibone, kind of to give himself an artist chance to be on his own, right? He definitely wanted his own identity. And I've even heard Henry Rollins refer to Ray Pettibone as a brilliant artist. And he really, really liked his work. I mean, he did the album art for Black Flag. He's the one who came up with the idea for the name as well as the uh, the logo, the four bars and every use of it on the album except for one album, right? Yep. And by the way, when that album came out, the last one without his work on it, it was an issue with the fans. These are discerning punk rockers, man. We're going to get shit on this one no matter how good we do. Or, <laughs> or how badly we do. Oh, don't scare me. <laughs> one thing I did not know, man, is that the Ginn brothers were the sons of a teacher who was also a spy novelist, R.C.K. Ginn. I'm going to go have to look him up now. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to look his books up yet, but I saw that and was like, whoa, pretty cool. Interesting that he grew up so anti-establishment and so anti-systemic. Uh, Might even explain a little bit of it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Early in the episode, Marcus, we talked about Keith Morris, who, as you mentioned, went on to form the Circle Jerks and was the first singer and co-founder of Black Flag. Ron Reyes comes in, and then he leaves, and then Des Cadena comes in and has his time. And then Henry Rollins really has the longest time at Singer before he leaves, and the whole thing goes to hell. And I did learn that that Mike Vallely guy that is the singer on the reunion stuff was actually their manager and stepped in in one of those situations where they were in the breach, <laughs> and he actually replaced Reyes on vocals and that he was a professional skateboarder. So there, I know a lot more about a guy I'll never meet or know, all because of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll podcast, and now I've imparted that knowledge onto all of you. Don't you feel lucky? <laughs> hey, I wanted to talk about the role of Spot and Bill Stevenson. I mentioned it in the first half, but, you know, those two guys, really, along with Ginn and whatever other characters were in and out of the control room, really crafted the sound as it evolved of Black Flag. And I think it's important to note that. I think I just wanted to make more noise about it to make sure we didn't forget him. And because we lost him this year. Spot, very fundamental in the aggressive and really gnarly sound that Black Flag gave to us through their records. Spot was also involved in almost every one of those records and bands that we mentioned that recorded with SST as an engineer, mix engineer, recording engineer, producer. He was heavily involved in all of those bands' sounds. and that He was like the house guy. Yes. That dude was great at what he did. The first album that we got from Black Flag was recorded in like 1978 in January. It was released a year later. It was the Nervous Breakdown EP. And it, is that the one that you said sounded so bad because of the way they had to record it? Yeah, it was all that distortion was them. 
and it wasn't done by the stu- the studio or anything like that. It was them playing so loud to drown out the sound below them. Not a good environment to make anything worth saving, but there you are. Yep. Brian Migdol played drums on the album, even though on the first pressings of the original 7-inch, Robo, their second drummer, was credited. Just one of those things that happened. They actually had a hard time getting this album put out at first because the only label that was interested in them ended up after saying, yes, we'd love to put this record out, ran into financial trouble. So they said, nope, we can't do it. So Greg Ginn was like, you know what? I have this business SST. I'm going to put it out and we're going to start a label. Turned out to be a smart move on his part. Very much so. Very much so. Then they did an EP called Jealous Again with the song Jealous Again. You might be familiar with the Black Crows did that. Also had Revenge, White Minority, No Values, and You Bet We've Got Something Personal Against You on it. You bet I've got something personal against you. We know you stole our dog. You look back. Never touch it now. You look back. Fucking weird all down. You look back. Everything you've done now. And from there, they recorded their version of Louie Louie. From there, they recorded the six-pack EP, which had Des Cadena on vocals. And so after having all of these EPs recorded and songs recorded, they finally settled on Henry Rollins and knew he was the guy. And in October of 81, went into the studio to record Damage. They did it at Unicorn Studios in West Hollywood. Spot produced it. And then they released it like December of that year. And it, I think, scared some people because it was so angry. It was a whole different kind of anger, I think, than we had seen before and inner pain that was never, you know, allowed to come out, but was coming out. And you hear it in Rise Above. You hear it in uh, Mm -hmm. Gimme, Gimme, Gimme. You hear it in Damaged One, which we both love that song. You hear it in Depression. You hear it in Padded Cell. Hold out your hand to me. Police story, too, even you can feel it a little bit. But boy, is that a tough album. And I think 
being as young as I was when I heard it, I didn't really feel that anger and that pain the same way they did. I definitely wasn't uh, at that point. I think in the 20s, when I went through my rough period, I would say I was more in tune with some of those uh, pain feelings. In my teen years, I was just like, oh man, this is pure anarchy and against the system. Whoa. And Des Cadena, the former vocalist, had moved over to rhythm guitar at that point. He did not fully leave the band. He just moved over to uh, rhythm guitar. I think what happens with this album is taking it from the scale of an EP and whatever studio space they were in and really making an album, taking all the ideas, putting it out there and putting it together in, you know, 1981 terms. Not an easy thing to do because it's not like cookie cutter punk rock give me 14 songs on the side you know what I mean it's not like that but I think what they did was establish a baseline for who they were what they sounded like and of course anytime a band starts it's bound to go and grow or they go away right absolutely and if you watched late night MTV in the early 80s TV party was the one video from Black Flag that you saw in rotation once in a while and it was the only one that was really safe enough for MTV at that time Doing our checking around, when I was listening to this album, I saw that Rise Above is their number one song on Spotify. And are you ready for this? Over 29 million plays. So there's some angry people in the world. Uh, also, I like that Room 13 and Gimme Gimme on that record a lot. On their next album, My War, Marcus, that's where they established the trio of Gin, Spot, and Stevenson. They're really working together to craft the sound of this band because they know they've got something. I put my fist to the door. I hate myself for you. I love you. Suspicion rules my very soul. My knife is sharp. My thoughts are cold. I love you. I love you. Because On this album, they started slowing it down a little bit. On side two of the record, they had three six-minute songs. And in the hardcore scene, the punks were like, what the fuck are you doing, Jason? Let me ask you something. (laughs) Is that what Chuck Dukowski was saying as he left the band? Because, I mean, I know he has a couple songs on this record, but he left. Is that why? No, that's not why. Um, I think they did change musically, and I think he wanted to play the faster, aggressive sound versus the sludgier stuff. Gotcha. So um, it is. I think uh, this yeah. is also the first album that Dale Nixon plays bass, aka Greg Kidd. His alter ego, Dale Nixon, makes their debut. And yeah, Chuck Dukowski stayed along and managed SST, so he didn't fully leave the fold. He just left the band. Just one of those things. That explains something for me, because 
I noticed that he was involved in a lot of things, and now I know why he was still so involved, because he was involved with the label. Thanks. Another thing that also started upsetting their fan base is that they started growing their hair out, too. And that pissed off the hardcore punk fans. Times change, got to keep up, you know? And so in September of 84, to keep that torrid pace going, they released their second album of the year, an album called Family Man. Hmm. Quite an interesting dichotomy, my dear Marcus, because it really shows the creation of two different spheres. On side A, you've got Henry, spoken word, accompaniment in some places, but pretty much Henry. And side B is pretty much Greg. Now, some people might look at it and go, are these two on the way for a punk rock divorce? But it actually was their thing, what they wanted to do with this album. Something different. Yeah, it's really wild. The first six songs are a total of like seven and a half minutes. And then the seventh song on side one or side A is nine minutes and 12 seconds long. And then on side B, they have two fours, a five and a half, almost six minute song, as well as a two minute song. If you think about it, man, that long form song, Armageddon Man, it's got musical accompaniment. It takes the tone of a backdrop for Rollins' thought drops. And that becomes a big part of who he is as an artist. You can't deny it once you find it, right? True. So most bands would call it a good year with two albums, right, Marcus? Not our boys, Black Flag. Slip it in, man. Slip it in. Yeah, recorded in 1984 in June. They released it in December of 1984 at Total Access Recording in Redondo Beach, California. And this album is closer to where Greg Ginn wanted to move the band with the slower, sludgier punk. I mean, you can hear the uh, evolution or the change in the band even more so with this record. And Brother Ray joins the controversy column with the cover art, which is uh, a naked leg, which appears to be a guy's or an unshaven woman's leg. And the nun has got her arm wrapped around its own in a way that would indicate that she's not offering prayer counsel. brother ray saves the day on slip it in you know ray's artwork takes a different tone on loose nut not exactly what it's been through the years although the four bars and black flag are the same right absolutely that's the one thing that remained a hundred percent constant something else changed on this record though the arrival of kira rosler on bass greg ginn really liked her feel and her work ethic and that is why he asked her to join the band they are the two main elements for anybody to be valuable inside a band and there's some good songs on here too bastard in love annihilate this week And this is good. All songs that stood out to me. 
I also like Best One Yet on that record, which is one of the songs that Kira co-wrote with Henry Rollins. And speaking of co-writers, Chuck Dukowski's still kicking in on a song <laughs> or two. <laughs> now, the next album is a bit different, even for them, man. The process of weeding out an EP, and I'll just say it's different. Avant-garde, if you will. Mm-hmm. But they keep going, man. They keep making new records. And releasing in October of 85 is In My Head, their third album or second album, third record of the of the year as far as new recordings. They're kicking out a lot of material. They're one of those bands that always stayed busy. They continue to do so here. There's something to be said for that, especially in punk rock, especially in DIY. Because if you're not working, who is? Very true, and these guys were as DIY as it gets. All right, now this is where things get funky, Marcus, because the next record is actually after the breakup, I guess, but it's called Minute Flag, and it's the Minutemen and Black Flag together, melding together to make four songs. Pretty cool idea. Yeah, this is a really cool thing that they did. D. Boone basically sang vocals with Henry behind him, Mike Watt and Kira Rosler both played bass on the album. They had Bill Stevenson playing drums with George Hurley playing bongos in a bean can. It's a pretty cool thing that they did, and I'm glad that this was made before D. Boone passed away. Nineteen eighty six sees them release Who's Got the Ten and a Half? What the hell's the <laughs> ten and a half, man? Do I wanna know? It's a live record. I'm just wondering if it's slang for wink wink. I Did you get know. the ten and a half? Uh it's really, you know, the end though for Black Flag as they been and then uh they release I Can See You and, and then they release live at the On Broadway in nineteen eighty two. Uh, as as a release and then they release what the which is the seventh studio album. that's the one that raymond didn't do the art on that got everybody pissed off and apparently it didn't do what they thought it was going to do whatever they thought it was going to do and it was more instrumental with ron reyes doing really the only bit of lead vocals when they had vocals so it was sans henry rollins and it was a totally different thing for them Everything we just talked about underlines your contention that this is really Greg Ginn's thing. His band, he made it work. He made it go. He kept it going when other people gave up. And I guess it's fair to say that he's done a pretty good job at all that and a whole hell of a lot more for a lot of people making great music from the underground. Well, as we should be at the end of anything involving Black Flag, I don't know about you, but I feel exhausted, dude. All that verbal moshing made me tired. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm not sweating to the balls, but, you know, I'm kind of worn out, and I'm going to go lay down now. And Punk Rock Month continuing next week, 
with a re-release of our fantastic episode about those sex pistols, Marcus. We love them so much, and yet we hate them too. <laughs> True story. <laughs> From the Dark Duck Media Studios, it is the Imbalance History. Uh, such a great time. We look for your input because we have fun. We get lost sometimes, and maybe you can help us fill in the blanks. We tend to come up with a few blank spots here and there. So thanks for your part in that, either through social media or through email, imbalancehistory at gmail.com, or through the website. You can always submit a form there at imbalancehistory.com, where you can find all the episodes anytime you want to listen. Till the next time we gather around the microphones, I'm Ray Koob. I'm Marcus Goldman. This is the Imbalanced History of Punk Rock and Roll. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.